0: Namo tasa arahato samma sambudhasa. Namo arahato samma sambudhasa. Namo arahato samma sambudhasa. Putang tamang namasami. As I mentioned earlier today, uh, for the last couple of readings uh, for this retreat time, we would right, please, thank you, home. Uh, the uh, have pretty much come to the end of the uh, Venerable payuto Dependent Origination book, and so I thought I would read a couple of the talks from the uh, this collection of uh, Lumpur Sumatos. This is the, uh, the anthology. But these originally appeared in the book called *The Way It Is*, and there's a series of five uh, Dhamma talks on the theme of dependent origination. And they all came from the winter retreat of 1988. And some of you weren't even born, <laughs> but yeah, 1988 was um, when these were given. And uh, so they're they're, they're very uh, a helpful set of teachings. And so um, you can find this is volume three of the. Of the anthology, but they're also in the individual book the way it is. So, this is the first one of the five called uh, Ignorance is Self View. The uniqueness of the Buddhist approach is anatta, the realization of not self. The particular style of reflection in structures like the Four Noble Truths and the Paticca Samuppada changes the way of thinking from the self view of the soul and me as an absolute to anatta, not-self. The problem lies in the fact that not-self, quote-unquote, seems like annihilation. And what frightens people about Buddhism is that not-self and no-soul sound like an absolute position that one has to take as a Buddhist. People who hate God and resent Christianity may become Buddhists because they've got a grudge against God, the soul, sin and guilt, and they really want Buddhism to be a kind of atheistic philosophy and a total rejection Of the whole Christian experience. But that's not what it is. Buddhism is not atheistic or nihilistic. The Buddha was very careful to avoid such extreme positions. Instead, his teaching is a very skillfully and carefully constructed psychology. Its aim is to help us see through and let go of all the habitual attachments, attitudes born out of ignorance, fear and desire, that create this illusory sense of a self. So, for over two and a half thousand years now, Buddhism has managed to survive and keep its purity. That's because its approach is very clear. There is a Sangha living under the Vinaya discipline, and there's this teaching of the Dhamma. And so, uh, um, when uh, people think of um, or, or the uh, idea of um, Buddhist teaching not being a theistic religion, then um, more accurately, you could say it's a non-theistic rather than an atheistic religion, which might seem a bit of a splitting hairs. But it's uh, like Taoism; it doesn't depend on the idea of a of a creative deity or a supreme deity. So it's not saying there is no ultimate reality. It's not sort of atheistic or saying there are no deities or there's no there's no ultimate reality. But rather, it is not speaking in terms of some kind of uh, ultimate or, or dominant uh, divine being. So non-theistic is more accurate than atheistic. Again, that might seem like <laughs> same same thing, but uh, there, is, there is a bit of a dis- uh, distinction. And also, listening to uh, uh, Lumpur Samedo's talks or reading them, then God and soul and such like make a lot of appearances in, in, his, in his talks. Um, he grew up in a, a, a episcopalian Christian uh, uh, family a high Anglican sort of American version of, of Anglican church um, He actually even thought about becoming a, a Christian minister at one point but um, he uh, and he apparently went to go and chat with a local bishop about the possibilities of him entering into that uh, that kind of training but um, he had too many doubts to make it uh, uh, workable for him so he, he often mentions that so the languaging of, of Christianity and God and soul and such like uh, make frequent appearances in his teachings because that's sort of the the uh, the ground of conditioning that, that um, he had in uh, in these early early part of his life if we practice with this in the right way we can really begin to see the suffering and misery we create over the illusions about ourselves. We're not trying to create an illusion that there isn't any self. The point is not to go from the illusion of self to the illusion of there is no self, Um, but rather to investigate, contemplate and have insight until the ineffable truth is realized by each one of us for ourselves. Each one of us has our own unique experience. We don't all experience exactly the same things. We have different memories, experiences, tendencies and habits. And yet, we always relate these infinite varieties to Dhamma teachings. So we're not just making totally subjective interpretations. We apply the Dhamma teaching to our experience in order to be able to communicate and understand it in a context that is wider than that of personal subjectivity. So that, uh, uh, again, the, uh, as I was mentioning the other day, the, the approach of the, of the Buddha, and particularly in teachings like the Anattalakana Sutta, Rather than trying to define what we are, he works by a, a um, what they call the the apophatic method of uh, talking about what we're not, uh, and the the uh, the cataphatic means affirming what we are, uh, and apophatic means uh, approaching reality by uh, by defining what we are not. So that's the, the Buddha's approach, also called the via negativa in in Latin. So that not this, not that, not this, not that. And, um, and, and so that the approach is to recognize the things that we habitually take ourselves to be like you know, the body, the personality, our name, our story, our, our age, our nationality, our you know, name and family history and so on and to explore those and to see that you know, that's not what we are and by letting go of the habitual uh, uh, identification with what we're not and what is real uh, is is what remains, or what it, what is uh, is revealed. Um, that uh, so, rather than trying to then then describe that or, or make a concept about that, rather to let that quality of realization of the the um, the presence of Dhamma be something that speaks for itself. It doesn't have to have a, a, a word or an idea to, to describe it. That's the the basic principle of uh, you know the Buddha's approach and as I was mentioning the other day with uh, Ajahn um wonderful little essay No Self or Not Self he points out that there, there isn't any place in the Pali Canon where the Buddha says there is no self in fact he says if you hold the view there is no self then that's a, a variety of, of wrong view or well, that's, that's a, 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 a distorted view so that uh, uh, it's not just uh, the whole point of the use of, of these teachings on anatta and, uh, and such They're a set of tools to to work with our habitual perceptions and ideas rather than a philosophical principle to to grasp hold of. So, any questions, thoughts? Yes? I
1: was just uh, reflecting and saying that uh, at one point in time I I, uh, studied epistemology uh was trying to find uh, my way back to sanity and <laughs> <laughs> I found that it uh, you know it, it basically is a philosophy of truth like how do you know you know what you know mm-hmm. so it seems that from, from 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 what you've read the Buddha in many ways wanted to uh, you know people away from the more academic philosophical kind of things and just focus them on the practical day to day things that you and I, I think he made a lot of emphasis towards what what you can personally experience yourself.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I mean he he was an Indian living in India and has this in, in a very, very strong philosophical tradition. And so being able to make a sort of watertight case for why your philosophy is correct and the other ones are incorrect, but relying on words and explanations and conceptual maps, that was the, the landscape that you know, he was, he was sort of, uh, a part of. And so uh, it seems from very early on he, he realized you know, the map is not the territory. <laughs> and that it, it, it's a, the... focusing on the sort of refined philosophical explanations... And uh, and coming up with the perfect map is still uh, doesn't really help you in terms of, of the momentary experience of, of of dukkha you know and suffering and so on and yeah and that's something that you, that is is borne out over and over again. I've I've known you know, people who are you know in in sort of academic studies of, of Buddhism having um, kind of vitriolic <laughs> arguments and. Sort of a, a lot of contention and sort of vying for position over extremely refined points of philosophy but the actual thing is you know i'm right you're wrong you know, you shut up you know <laughs> yeah you know, uh, i've got more qualifications than you have you know my my argument is better than yours so you, you shut up and and, uh, uh, and you uh, consider yourself defeated and so the the on the surface level it's very refined philosophy but on the uh, on the actual ground level it's like you know, two eight year olds fighting in the school playground you know it's just like i'm right you're wrong now i'm right you're wrong <laughs> and so very uh very much caught into ego and contention and um, and it's not obviously the case in everybody in academia but it's uh, that uh, capacity of the mind to get locked onto verbal explanations and conceptual structures and, and mistake that for then uh, i could uh, a genuinely liberating understanding uh, uh, and that's what the buddha saw so his his attention went to that i teach one thing dukkha and the ending of dukkha <laughs> and then what words could back that up and support that then great but uh, he generally used fairly sort of household language a lot m- much of the time uh, and uh, rather than than sort of complicated philosophical principles that only a handful of professional debaters or philosophers would understand. So, to continue. Often people deviate in their practice because religious experiences are interpreted too subjectively. They're not put across in a form that can be communicated. They become quite unique personal experiences rather than universal realizations. But the Buddha established a whole way of thinking and expressing the teachings that is exactly the same today. We're not here to change it and bend it, all, uh, bend it all to fit our personal experience. We measure our experience with the teaching, because the teachings are so skillfully made that they cover everything. In the contemplation of samuppada we're coming to agreements on how its terms relate to contemplative experience. When you first read Paticca Samapada, you don't understand it at all. Ignorance, conditions, karmic formations, karmic formations, condition consciousness, etc. So what? What does that mean? Uh, You imagine it must be very profound and probably takes a lifetime of studying Pali to understand, so you tend to brush it aside. In Buddhist circles, the Four Noble Truths can be glossed over. Oh yes! Basic Buddhism, yes, now, let's get on to the real advanced Majamika Buddhism, or what did Dogen say, or Milarepa is absolutely fascinating, isn't he? And you think, suffering, origin, cessation, and path, well, yes, we know that. Now let's get on to the real nitty-gritty. So the Four Noble Truths tend to be perfunctory beliefs. People don't investigate them or use them, because the teachings in themselves are not interesting. Suffering, origin, cessation, and path is not an inspiring teaching, because it's a teaching for practice, not a teaching intended to be inspirational. And this is why we use it, because that particular way of thinking and contemplating is psychologically valid. With it, we can begin to understand that which we've never seen or understood before. In following this way of practice, you're actually developing your mind and intelligence in a way that is very seldom done. Even in the most advanced educational systems, people don't really train their minds in this particular way of reflection and contemplation. To think rationally is highly regarded, but to understand what rationality is, as a function of mind, you have to reflect on the nature of the mind. What is actually happening? What is it all about? And of course, these are the questions of existence, the existential questions. Why was I born? Is there a meaning to life? What happens when I die? What is this all about? Is it meaningless? Just a cosmic accident? Does it relate to anything beyond itself? Or is this merely something that happens and then that's it, that's the end? We have great problems with relating the meaning of life to anything real beyond the material world. So, materialism becomes the reality for us. When we explore space, it's always on the material plane. We want to go up in rocket ships and take our bodies up to the moon because according to the materialist view, that's what's real. Western materialism lacks subtlety and refinement. It brings us down to a very coarse level of consciousness, where reality is this gross material object, and the emotions are dismissed as not being real, because they're subjective. You can't go around measuring emotions with electronic instruments. Uh, this was 1988 when you couldn't, but you, you can now. <laughs> They've got MRIs and such like the track exactly where sadness and compassion pop into being in our our brains. But of course, the emotions are very real to us individually. What we're feeling is really more important to us than a digital watch. Our fears, desires, loves, hates and aspirations are what really make our lives happy or miserable. And yet these can be dismissed in modern materialism for a world based on just sensual pleasure, material wealth and rational thinking. So that the spiritual life seems to many people to be just an illusion, because you can't measure it with a computer or examine it with electronic instruments. But just to, to, to pick up on that and the, the kind of uninspiring nature of the Four Noble Truths suffering, origin, cessation, and path, and, and also the, the teachings on Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, they're, they're not supposed to be um, teachings that sort of make the heart sing. They're, they're not supposed to be. Uh, that automatically kind of uplifting or or brightening. They're more like a toolkit, so that if you if you uh, if you need to fix something, you know it's really handy to have a set of screwdrivers or you know a set of spanners that that match the the size of, of the nuts on the 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 engine that you got to take apart or the 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 thing that you have to fix. So the four noble truths is rather like a set of screwdrivers with you know there's the Phillips head and there's the Allen keys and there's the the, the 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 little fine bit and the, or the wide bit, so you know a screwdriver is not a particularly inspiring thing, but if you need to get a screw undone, <laughs> it's really useful. Or a spanner, you know, a set of spanners. Uh, they they don't say oh wow, look at that. You know, for most people, <laughs> maybe there are a few engineering types light up when they see a you know a socket set, but uh, for most people, it's it's but it's really useful when you need it to to. Um, you change the spark plugs on your on an engine and such like. It's that's what you need the the tools that you need in order to bring about the the function to bring the functionality of the machine uh, back in into being. And so that that's that the point that Lumpur is making is that they are uh, there. There's a a usefulness, a practicality to the to the teachings, and so they're not uh, intending to be particularly glamorous or or in, inspiring, but more effective tools if they're applied in a a skillful way. Also, these uh, going again to um, to uh, uh, the reflections on, on intellectualism and such like that he's talking about here, I remember um, when I lived in the States that the, um, the San Francisco Chronicle has got a, a really good, I would say, a really good science section. They have uh, really uh, quite thorough um, and sort of large-scale reports and, and very you know, accurate. Uh, art, you know, informative articles and um, there was one big spread over a couple of full, uh, full-size pages in the in the Chronicle about this. these two groups who were trying, two different sets of astronomers who were trying to make these measurements to figure out exactly at what rate the universe was expanding. So is it going to expand and keep expanding or is it going to reach a limit and then start collapsing? And these uh, They were interviewing these various different scientists, and one had a a telescope in, uh, I think in Chile in the the mountains, and the other had a a telescope in in Australia, out in the desert I think, and uh, they were asking, they were kind of racing with each other to try and make these crucial measurements, and um, they were asking uh, one of the the lead scientists about how things were going, and he said, well... uh, they say that gravity is the most powerful force in the universe, but actually I think professional jealousy is. <laughs> so again, it's like, yeah, technically we're measuring the expansion of the universe, but actually we're just trying to beat the other guy. That's, that's really what we're doing, is, uh, is the actuality of what we're doing, is trying to be <laughs> the ones who get the prize. Yeah. I thought, well, it's very insightful uh, and also good that the reporter put that into the paper. Yet, in pre-scientific European civilization, the spiritual world was the real world. How do you think they built the cathedrals? And art, all this came from a real sense of spiritual aspiration, of the human being connected to something beyond the material world. Spiritual truth is something each one must realize individually. Truth is self-realization, the ultimate subjectivity. And the Buddha takes subjectivity to the very center of the universe, the silent, still point, where the subject is not a personal subject. That still point is not anybody's or anything. In meditation, you're moving towards that. You're letting go of all these attachments to the changing conditions of the material world, the emotional plane, the intellectual plane, the symbolic plane, the astral plane. All that is let go of in order to realize the still point, the silence. This letting go is not an annihilation or a rejection but it gives you the perspective to understand the whole. You cannot understand the whole from being out on the circumference where you just get whirled around. Being whirled around on the circumference means that you're lost in attachment to all the things that are whirling around. It's called sangsara where you're just going around in circles and you can't get any perspective in sangsara. No ability to stop or watch or observe because you're just caught up in the circular movement. Uh, uh, There are some people who spell the the word world world, as W-H-I-R-L-E-D rather than W-O-R-L-D. The the world, that which is world around. They're they're not connected by etymology, but it's just a a neat coincidence that they sound the same. In this way of the Four Noble Truths and Patichu Samuppada, the aim of meditation is to stop the mind's whirling. You abide in stillness, not as an attack against the conditioned world, but in order to see it in perspective. You're not annihilating it or criticizing it, or trying to get out of it in any way through aversion or fear of it. You're getting to the center, to the still point, where you can see it for what it is, and know it, and not be frightened or deluded by it anymore. And we do this within the limitation of our personal experience. So we can say, each one for themselves, Because that's how it looks when we're sitting here. And yet that still point is not in the mind, it's not in the body. This is where it's ineffable. The full mind or the still point isn't a point within the brain. Yet you're realizing that universal silence, stillness, oneness, where all the rest is a reflection and seen in perspective. And the personality, the karma, the differences, the varieties, and all these things are no longer deluding us, because we're no longer grasping at them. As we examine the mind more and more, as we reflect and contemplate on it and learn from it, we all begin to realize the stillness of mind, which is always present, but which, with most people, is not even noticed, because the life of samsara is so busy, so frantic, that one is whirled around. Even though the still point is always here, it's never seen until you have an opportunity to abide in the stillness, rather than go around on the on the circumference. So in those days, that was a very uh, very f- uh, common theme of Lumpur's teachings, and he would often quote uh, T. S. Eliot, the the still point of the turning world from one of the uh, the, the four quartets, to be at the the still point, uh, at the centre of the turning world, and that uh, that is a, uh, that image of uh, meditation and that, that also that even though he uses the language of it being a point, it's also not a, uh, a geographical point or a, a, a point that has a particular spot uh, that it is physically located, but rather it's that quality of, of centeredness itself, the still point like the center of the cyclone, the, the, the center the still point at the center of the turning world. Any questions, thoughts? Yes.
2: I uh, the word "nyanadasa" like the ultimate reality. Yesterday you mentioned the word "nyanadasa," knowledge, 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 knowing, seeing. So I'm thinking mm-hmm. this just a way of expression, expression, knowing and seeing. Or there are two parts for the for the truth, knowing and seeing. Where to see the ultimate reality?
0: Is it meditation or a good question. Um, uh, I, I tend to I tend to think of it as one quality of knowing, ñāna uh, sort of knowing and seeing. It's using the imagery of a uh, vision, um, but it's not like a, a visual experience. So I think it's, it's using the language, in you know, a in a figurative way. Um, but uh, it, you know, different people have different interpretations, so there'll be some who say, oh, Jnana Dasana is just, yeah, it's a, uh, and often I would say it's the same as insight. It, so when we talk about Vipassana, then that arising of um yata, bhutan, Jnana Dasana, knowledge and vision of the way things are, that's, that's, I would say, synonymous with with insight of Vipassana, when that um, seeing the uh, the the nature of all experiencing uh, that that insight um, is the same as yatha bhutan but it's I wouldn't say there's a fixed interpretation that uh, there was a, a a Thai forest monk that in a Pyangiri monastery a, a Thai a group of Thai people bought the land right next door just across the ridge and they started up another forest monastery just beside us and they're all students of Lumpur Thun the uh, Lumbardun Um so this monastery is called KPY, it was sort of short for Kipa panyo <laughs> And uh, so, in the early days, Lumbardun would come over and spend uh, several weeks there, um, and uh, we would go up and listen to his Dhamma teachings. And, uh, and so, uh, one, uh, one time we were there, and he gave this long, this long talk, um, and he was very, very clear that. Jnana Dasana is not the same as Dasana Jnana." And uh, I was sort of looking at Ajahnpastana and I was like, Dasana Jnana? I've well, never heard of that before. But it was like, don't make the mistake, you know, Jnana Dasana is not the same as Dasana Jnana, you know, it's a really bad error. And this whole Dhamma talk was around, don't make that mistake. and, and I don't think we were the only ones thinking, um, what's the difference? <laughs> But for him, yeah, he'd practiced with that, and and it was obviously very different. there's was a different take. And uh, and even when I asked Ajahn Pasnota, whose Thai language is pretty good, to sort of break down exactly what Tun was saying in terms of defining the difference between Jnana-dasana and Tasana jnana and he sort of <laughs> couldn't quite couldn't quite get the, the uh, nuances of what the difference was. But he knew it was really clear. But Lumpur wanted to make sure we didn't make that mistake of, you know, getting the uh, substituting the one for the other. Uh, so, uh, and that's often the 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 way things work that a, uh, a, a person will have lo- uh, looked into the teachings or the practice in a particular way, and they they use the language how it takes on a, a in a certain way, it takes on a particular set of meanings for them. So for Lumpur tun it was really very, obviously very different, and he was quite. Keen to make sure that we understood what he was saying, but because the others, others of us weren't familiar with his pattern of, of speech and, and how he explained things, um, it was a bit mysterious. The people who were his long term students, they were kind of what we, they kind of, there they was more familiar territory, so the, the language was known to them, so they had a bit more of a background. But um, were, those of us from the kind of were a little bit lost at, at that point. So it's a, uh, it, but it's also good to to um, you know, to reflect on these things uh, and say the um, the difference between vision or the you know the language of uh, of dhamma often involves light like chakung Udapadi vision arose nyana udapadi knowledge arose panya, uh, 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 wisdom arose uh, aloka light arose so there's a lot of light imagery. In that that the Buddha uses, Um, uh, but also the um, uh, there's uh, for other people they might not be so vision focused, but they might be more hearing focused that they got, and so that the the aspect of listening or hearing uh, is more significant or has greater meaning that you're sort of receiving the dhamma, you're hearing the dhamma, you're so like the one of the the names for the, the Sangha, or the Buddha's disciples, is the Savaka Sangha. the 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 uh, and, that, and that literally means hearing the sound, the sound hearers, the Savaka. Uh, I think uh, Mechi is Savika magazine. Is that right? Yeah. And that the, the that uh, it's like uh, receiving the teaching or understanding, growing through through hearing, listening, taking things in that way. Oh, it's, with these things, it's, it's good to pick up a particular term and explore it and say, well, okay, um, so how do I relate to knowledge or understanding? How do I relate to vision or, or seeing? How do I relate to hearing or tasting? You know, the, the taste of freedom. You know, which I used that, that phrase, the, the, uh, the, the taste of freedom. Maybe hearing and seeing doesn't have that effect, but tasting does. You know, that, 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 uh, that has a uh, particular impact. So you're reflecting on the terms, and then uh, seeing how they, they match your own personal experience, like, like Lumpo is saying here, that uh, we, we all have different conditioning, different backgrounds, and so we're using the terminology of the teachings to, to try and map our own particular way of, of experiencing and, and naming and, and uh, say, knowing the world. Uh, we're using the, 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 the teaching, the format of the teachings and the language of the teachings to, to help uh, make make sense of, of what we experience and how we experience it. And so that then uh, I feel it's a very useful thing to, to kind of develop your own language really and to use your your own terminology for talking about how your mind works, different states that are there, uh, the, uh, the way that things work together within you. Even if it doesn't match for people around you it doesn't match a sort of scriptural uh, format if it's if it's meaningful for you and it, and, and it works to help clarify things then it's it's a useful process and also it's, it's uh, if things are unclear that's, that's also useful jnana dasana same or different don't know ok so just let it be let it be unknown it might be different it might be the same let's just let it hover there, and and then investigate, over time. Yes?
1: Uh,
0: Well, I would say it's related to... uh, uh, the word vipassana, or insight, I take as having the same meaning as yata bhutang knowledge and vision of the way things are. That's how I was talking about. It. So, if, if if there's genuine insight, then uh, the the feelings of I, the uh, the habits of sakaya dithi, they are they are seen through because part of that insight is is letting go of uh, of um, atta and seeing the, the true nature of. Of things in terms of anatta.
1: Okay.
0: You okay, have a question?
1: Well, it just occurred to me when you were saying about this, uh, jnana and dasana, and not Dasan and mm-hmm. I was thinking, well, actually, uh, knowledge of vision is like an optician. You know, you've got good knowledge about how the eye works. Mm-hmm. Whereas, vision of knowledge, you're actually seeing how things are.
0: Just no, that, that's—I would say—that's exactly the kind of thing to to play with and to juggle things around. So, mm, I mean, I've done that a lot in the past, and just uh, and just ex- exploring the words, experimenting with the words, and and then just seeing what associations they have. Like, oh, that's different. Yeah, maybe that's that has a value, and then uh, putting that to work, and putting that, uh, using that.
1: Yes. It just occurred okay to me when you uh, when you get when you're reading about the example of the tool box, uh, and, uh, it's a a good, uh, good analogy that came to mind of I um, must say, you know, what when you're looking for a tool, you start with what problem am I trying to solve? Yeah. So if you for example, if you if you want to put a hole in the wall, you go and buy a drill. But you know what you're buying is not a drill; you're buying the hole in your wall. <laughs> so it's a so uh, so when you get that example, that, that just kept in mind that you visualize that. Say, I suppose the Buddha when he said, you know. What's the problem he was trying to solve, and he thought, okay, dukkha, and what's the ending of dukkha? And I, I divided that probably after he finished giving that teaching. He thought, okay, this is uh, uh, this has been uh, fully explained, and then yeah, it's just it's just uh, seemed to come to mind that yeah, it seems like. That's a way to look at it as a toolbox. This was a problem to be solved and this was kind of the tool to solve the problem.
0: Exactly. So that the, the yeah. when yeah. when he gave that first teaching, the Dhammachaka Sutta, and then Kandanya was the only one of the five that understood uh, in a in a complete way or comprehensive way. And so then at uh, the end of that, then the Buddha realized, oh, Kandanya understands. anyasi watabol Kandanyo. anyasi watabol khandanyoti. Kandanya understands. <laughs> so that he saw that, that the, uh, the, the, he handed out the tools, and that Kandanya had been able to, uh, at, at least apply them to the point of arriving at, at stream entry, getting beyond doubt, and, uh, and having that, uh, that initial level of understanding and you know, realization. So that, uh, it's like, yeah, he's 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 figured out how to use the tool, and that he's making making progress. And it wasn't until he gave this the second uh, teaching on on Anattā that all five of them became arahants. But in the first talk, when he explained that the Middle Way and the Four Noble Truths, uh, only uh, only Kandanya had the insight and, and, and realized stream entry. And The others were still interested and had faith, but didn't didn't quite have that level of understanding. They hadn't quite figured out. How to use the tools to (coughs) fix that hole in the wall. Okay, so to continue. Not that stillness is something to attach to either. We're not trying to become people who are still. Just sitting here in stillness, not feeling anything. I know that some of you come in here and create a personal world that you can inhabit through your hour of meditation. But that's not the way out of suffering. That subjective and personal world is very dependent on things being a certain way. It's so fragile and so ephemeral that it's destroyed by the slightest disruption. The refined world of tranquility is so lovely, so peaceful. Then somebody moves their robes, or somebody's stomach growls, or somebody snores. It's disgusting to be disturbed from these fine, tranquil states by coarse bodily functions. But stillness isn't tranquility. It's not necessary that we should be tranquil. But there's stillness when we can trust in abiding in the silence rather than following our compulsive tendencies. We all tend to think we've got to be doing something. We're so conditioned to do things that even in meditation it becomes some some kind of compulsive activity that we're involved in. Develop this, develop that. I've got to develop my samadhi. I've got to develop the jhanas. You don't come in here and sit. You come here and develop! Exclamation mark. That's how we think. We feel guilty if we're not doing anything, not progressing, developing, getting anywhere. And yet, to be able to come in here and sit in stillness, it's not a very easy thing to do. It's much easier to make great meditation development projects, five-year plans, and so forth. Yet, you always end up at the still point, things as they are. So that was a a frequent theme, again, sitting in this very hall. (laughs) back in the, those years for about uh, for about three years in a row then uh, through each of the winter retreats and Lumpur spoke about dependent origination much of the time but he was quite he could be quite um, outspoken in terms of encouraging people not to just uh, as he says um uh, uh, you can inhabit uh, create a personal world that you can inhabit through the hour of meditation that he would uh, kind of if he saw people kind of Spacing out, or how he put people to be spacing out, or just getting absorbed in, in pleasant feelings, he would uh, he would call you on it and, and kind of stop doing that, stop meditating, and uh, and uh, so, so sometimes it was quite confusing for people. Right? And I remember one of the uh, sangha members at the time saying, "But Bumpur, what are we supposed to do?" He said, "Don't do anything." It's <laughs> been quite energetic exchanges in those days. And uh, so, it could, so there was that um, encouragement not just to be sort of using the meditation as a sunbathing, that's sort of, you know, delighting in pleasant states, but to be using the qualities of calmness and clarity and, and spaciousness, like having the using the the uh, open space of a of a, a tidy and clean room. You can use it for all kinds of things. Don't just um, sit and, and so. Get uh, get absorbed in the, the quietness and and pleasantness of a, of a quiet mind, but you use the space. Put the put the space to work. You know, make it a a, a zone of, of contemplation, an area of contemplation, um, and that, uh, and also as he touches on here, the sense of of um, even though saying don't just sit there and <laughs> and bliss out or, or just get. Uh, uh, absorbed in, in bright and pleasant mind states um, but to, to be using the space of the mind but then the other part of that is don't be doing something like I've got to do this and I've got to do that and the contrast between those two is there's the me doing something me me engaging, me trying to develop this me trying to get rid of that and so it's a uh, on the one hand encouragement not to just this, uh, sunbathe as it were just sort of uh, enjoying the, the the bright peaceful quality of the mind, and and of uh, in a way switching off or, or disconnecting from the reflective faculty. So keep that uh, contemplative and reflective faculty alive, and use the quietness and and stillness of the mind to explore how things work. But also don't at the other extreme drift into me doing this. and I've got to do this, and I shouldn't be doing that, and and. Uh, Create this sense of a, a me doing the meditation project, and uh, uh, in in that regard, um, the uh, in the Tibetan tradition, the, the uh, one of our uh, good friends of, of the uh, sangha over the years, Tsukni Rinpoche, he would talk about uh, undistracted non-meditation as a sort of that's his a, a shorthand way of referring to the to the practice undistracted non-meditation so like to uh yes you're sitting there being quiet <laughs> and uh, observing uh, the uh, attuning to the present but without me doing something without that's a, a lack of distraction or an undistracted quality but it's not a, a me doing a meditation practice or me trying to get something and uh, again in this era lampo would say over and over again we're not trying to do something now in order to become enlightened in the future, but being awake now. So that was a very, a very um, much repeated theme, we're not trying to, um, to uh, do something now to become enlightened in the future, but being enlightened now, being awake now. Mm-hmm. Yes?
1: And, um in line with what you're sharing around, Creating a project for
2: ourselves in practice, um, what to reflect on and what to
1: contemplate on when the mind is still in calm, is that something that um, we can trust will pop up like
2: intuitively in practice,
1: versus you know think yeah,
0: coming to practice with an agenda, and gender? I will really contemplate this, and my body is going to be there. Well, both, both approaches can be used. So, again, in this era, often, um, say so Lumpur would, he would take one little chunk of the twelve links, so that like Avicya, Pachaya, Sankara, and he would just um, encourage uh, he would talk about that and reflect on it and then encourage us to be using that as a theme to like to, so you take that so over a two or three week period just looking at that how does that work how is this how is that felt what do the words mean in terms of personal experience, you know, individual experience uh, uh, when when we use the word ignorance what's what's the tone of that or how do we hold that or see that and then uh, uh, you know, the uh, and then why is that Creating complication, and he would summarise that ignorance complicates everything. Avicya, Pacharya, Sankara. or another section of the the um, the the twelve links, like salayatna pasavetana, six senses, contact, Feeling. and just taking that uh, as a deliberate theme, and you're picking up that, and he would offer reflections on that, and, and then. So that that would be, yeah, that's the the area of ex- exploration and investigation at this per- particular period of time. So um, that is very definitely one kind of approach that uh, that can be used. The other of just what, you know, waiting to see what pops up on its own is, is uh, equally valid. That's a little bit more prone to the mind sort of drifting in various different directions, but if you know, if there's quite a clear sense of well, whatever uh, whatever arises or takes shape you know, on this occasion, that's what will be explored. So you've got, a, in a way, a more distinct framework for that, rather than just leaving it a little bit more edgeless, or formless. Um, but uh, you yeah, know, both approaches uh, can be used. But also, like I've been saying, in so many other things, experiment and see uh, see what uh, has the best. Results almost beneficial results, and see how things work. Some people, as soon as they've got a program, oh, ignorance complicates everything, right? I've got a, I've got a, I should, yeah. As soon as there's a kind of a thing for me to do that, even a hint of that, and there's there's a uh, a program is launched, and so if that if that's the way the conditioning of the mind is, then it's probably more helpful just to leave it very dis, very deliberately unformed and, and say no no program no theme just whatever arises that's that's what'll be looked at so that it's um uh you know you're not feeding that tendency to just grab things and get get caught up in a, what you should be doing and and such right uh, and or if the other extreme if you tend to be very sort of drifty and unfocused and and that uh, I'll just watch whatever comes up and then you're kind of off in la-la land within seconds then recognize, okay, we need a few more edges here, a bit more uh, a few more bones in the structure to hold things together so getting to know our own character getting to know our tendencies and where the strengths and weaknesses are is a large part of it, but yeah, I'm a great advocate of experimentation just try things out and then see what the result is Okay, so to continue. (laughs) With understanding more and more, there can be a letting go of the desire to develop and become anything. And as one's mind is freed from all that desire to become and get something, to attain something, truth starts revealing itself. It's ever present, here and now. It's a matter of just being able to be open and sensitive so that truth is revealed. It's not something that is revealed from outside. The truth is always present, but we don't see. Sorry, we don't see it if we're caught up in the idea of attainments of me having to do something, having to get something. So the Buddha made a direct attack on me and mine. That's the only thing that's blocking you. The obstacle is the attachment to a self-view. That's what is the problem. If you just see through that self-view, let go of that, you'll understand the rest. You don't need to know all the other kinds of elaborate esoteric formulas. You don't have to go endlessly into the complexity if you just let go of the ignorant view of I am. See that, and know and understand the way of letting go, of non-attachment. Then the truth reveals itself wherever you are, all the time. But until you do that, you'll always be caught in creating problems and complications. Avicya, pachaya, sankara, sankara, pachaya, Vijnanang Vijnana pachaya, Namarupang, namarupa pacaya salayat nang salayat napaaya paso pasupacaaya vedna vedna pacaya thana thana pacaya upadana upadana pacaya bhavo bhavo pacaya jati jati pacaya jarama rnang sokapariyave tu ketha mana supayaasa samba All that means is that if you keep insisting on being attached to the illusions of a self, to greed, hatred, and delusion, all you're ever going to get at the end are old age, sickness, and death grief, sorrow, despair, and anguish. That's all you'll get for the rest of your life. A pretty boring prospect. But, you can be free from that, here and now, through right understanding, seeing things in the right way. There can be the knowing of truth, in which we are no longer deluded by appearances or habits, or by the conditions around us. And so, yeah, this is a, a very familiar um, theme. Also, Lumpo Chai used to use the the image of groundwater, saying so you don't have to create the truth that the Dhamma is ever present. It's like groundwater. If you if you dig, and this is like in, in Ubon Province, the way that things work is very very flat. <laughs> if you just dig uh, down, then you'll hit groundwater at a certain point. And so he said the Dhamma is like groundwater. If you just if you just dig down deep enough, then you'll find it. You don't create the water. Um, it's it, it's there according to its own uh, nature. It's part of the the, the the system of the world um, but if you don't dig then it, it, that that truth won't be accessed it, so it's ever present but the work of digging of uh, of the engaging in the practice has to be done in order for that truth to to manifest or to be to be realized and that uh, that which is obstructing that uh, as he points out is the uh, the the sort of number one obstacle or, or obstruction is that the habits of self view and so that, that the development of insight and particularly the insight into into not self learning to recognize that and to to let go of it uh, and then and then uh, directly experiencing or appreciating the nature of uh, reality free of self view then that is the the, sort of the key um a liberating principle of, of Dhamma practice. So that's what makes it a genuine practice of Dhamma. When the, the habits of self-view, I and me and mine, are, are let go of, when they're seen as, as empty, transparent, insubstantial, then the the uh, the Dhamma is is revealed. As it, it's always been here. It couldn't be anywhere else. But it's that me and and mine, the uh, the habits of self-view and conceit that. Uh, Continually obstructing that. Any thoughts, reflections, questions? Yes.
2: Um, I wonder if uh, this might be right. Uh, when I was home, I thought how my sister's son, the one year old, was better, and basically how naturally mind works and how curious it is, and how quickly it works. Like, every day, huge advancement would pick different things and uh, look and try how to play with it and go on and uh, it seems that naturally our mind is quite uh, curious and likes to learn new things and understand how things work and could you say that it's the same um, if we just leave the mind by itself to explore it does the same in meditation so basically we don't need to look at this or at that we have uh, mm-hmm. The view that is stuck, that we need to use this screwdriver to remove, that we was taught uh, how to become, what like what are the goals, so it's something that is really stuck in the mind, like about yourself, about what you should do in your life. And then my teachings mind just uh, explores and learn by itself which one is true, like your condition here or truly
0: the you don't much engage just to let it go through and curiosity and learn by itself would be the as an adult, you know, we we've all had um influences conditioning the mind. So uh, I think it, what you're saying is true in, in some respects. But um the the habits of you know where the mind likes to go what is it, what things we are afraid of or what things that we we feel we have to have or things that are uh, are a problem or, or that we, we contend against the conditioning of the mind can be very very strong and so that quite a lot of the practice is to get to know those habits of conditioning um, and so to enable that that exploring and learning to be uh un unbiased to be um sort of free of negative influences because uh yeah there is a natural curiosity, but it, the, the conditioning of the mind can be you know, a lot of there can be a lot of desire and fear and aversion and uh, opinion uh, that oh this is good, that's bad or don't go there, that's dangerous or that's really good get more of that that's a good thing and so that that the, that kind of conditioning can be really strong, and it can be taken to be absolutely true and valid, and so that that can uh, uh, have a very definite effect on the um, on the, the mind's ability to explore where it wants to explore, explore what, uh, what what things it uh, it doesn't want to challenge, and such like. So that uh, yeah, we do have a natural. Uh, Curiosity or a capacity to learn, but it's uh, I think why there are so many teachings <laughs> and uh, the the uh, the the structures of teachings that approach these different areas of our lives is because we do get affected, we get uh, habits get formed in different areas, and one of the aspects of habits is that they can be. So strong or so familiar that we don't even know that they're habits. We think it's just reality that, oh, that is ugly or that is beautiful. That is that's dangerous or that's uh, that's really valuable. And so it's getting that perspective. on, Well, why do I call that dangerous? Or why do I call that valuable? Why do I say this is that's, that's beautiful? That's ugly. Where's that coming from? So that um, freeing up that. Investigative, exploratory aspect of mind from those uh, biases and obstructions. That's an important part of of uh, the practice. You you can be, you know, you can you can grow up through uh, life being very, very proud. or think that you're really something special, and you know everyone is there just to sort of support you in your your kind of glory program. Or at the opposite end, you can feel like you're a victim. Everyone ha- hates you, and you're no good. You're useless, and uh, people are to be af- uh, uh, to be afraid of. And I mean, those are extreme examples, but we can we can have those kind of perspective on, to perspectives on life, and not even realize that they're there. That um, and they can be so so embedded, so strong. That uh, I should be this way. I shouldn't be that way. This is good. That's bad. And so then using the, the, the teachings to explore those different areas of conditioning and to, to recognize I mean, what they are and how they work is, is a really, uh, really important part of, of things. And like I've mentioned how uh, I, I used to be very anxious. I was such a... Uh, being worried about things was such a, 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 uh, an incessant habit. I didn't even realize I did it. I'd already been a monk for like six or seven years before I realised I'm worried all the time. Wow, wow! You know, it was just—it was like the, like air. You know, <laughs> the force of, the force of gravity. It's just like it's there all the time, so I never even noticed it. And then it was you know—I'd already been in robes for a long time, you know, six or seven years, seven or eight years, and I realised I worry about everything. Wow and just the sense of, of oh that's, the mind doesn't have to be in that state of anxiety about whatever it perceives it was just like, oh my goodness <laughs> perhaps I don't have to be worried in this way but it, I didn't even know it was there so that, getting getting familiar with those kinds of deeply rooted habits and being ready to work with us and uh, otherwise our natural ability or int- you know, capacity to explore and experiment, it's you know, there's certain large objects that it's sort of going around, but it doesn't address those those sort of fixed things in our, our conditioning that um, we uh, um, you know that are there in our life and just uh, are such a strong presence that it's just you know you, it's very hard to get any kind of perspective on them. So 7 o'clock has come around, so let's leave it there for today.